A special thanks to AMSA partner Walters Kluwer for supporting AMSA AdLib. To find out how you can save big on products through Walters Kluwer and their discounts on Lippincott resources, visit amsa.org WK. Have you spent longer than five hours learning about proper LGBT healthcare techniques in your formal medical education? If so, you may be the outlier. Welcome to AMSA AdLib. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. Transgender patients face major health disparities, and though stigma or politics may be a factor, it may also be that the school itself doesn't know where to turn. This week, AMSA's National Women's Programming Coordinator, Amanda Quach, speaks with Ariela Zamchek, who discusses her role in developing a standardized curriculum for LGBT care at her school, and how you, as a healthcare professional, can be asking the right questions in LGBT care to deliver both respectful and effective care. Here's Amanda. Hello everyone, my name is Amanda Quach and I'm a fourth year medical student at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences and also AMSA's Women's Programming Coordinator. Today I get the privilege of speaking with Ariella Zamchek. She's a fourth year medical student from the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine who has helped pioneer curriculum at her school for transgender healthcare. Hello Ariella and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amanda. Happy to be here. So a little bit about my background. I got into LGBT healthcare early on, hearing stories from my friends about how poorly they were treated in healthcare facilities as LGBT identifying people. When I got to med school, I became the outreach coordinator for our LGBT organization, the Health Equality Alliance. And as part of this, I helped to organize educational sessions and workshops, including a first and second year session specifically on transgender healthcare. And I did this to make sure that my classmates knew how to give appropriate, respectful care to all of their patients. So that's sort of why I fell into this role to begin with. Yeah, I don't think there's any denying that transgender patients do face major health disparities. And oftentimes it's the healthcare provider's lack of understanding or competency in handling transgender patients' health concerns that play a role in these disparities. Um, unfortunately, there's no standardized curriculum when it comes to LGBT-specific medical issues and medical education. I saw a 2011 JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association survey, of 176 U.S. and Canadian medical schools, and of those that responded, the average time for LGBT content in the entire curriculum was about five hours, and up to a third of these schools showed zero hours during clinical years. Can you tell us a little bit about the LGBT curriculum that you have helped develop and what inspired and motivated you to start this project? Sure. So luckily, my school has had a broad LGBT curriculum for a number of years. This has been a four-hour session focused primarily on challenging students' biases and familiarizing students with broad definitions of sexuality and health disparities. Also, for many years, we've had a pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Norman Spack, come to speak about transgender youth. We felt in my club that we could do a little bit better and we could actually teach students specific clinically minded skills related to their LGBT patients. Also, a couple years ago, Dr. Spack wasn't available. So my club decided that we should probably try to formulate a session on our own. We discussed this and agreed that we should really teach students ourselves about transgender health care without Dr. Spack. What is included in the curriculum that you helped develop? 
So the session included a really thorough background on transgender health disparities, relevant terminology, and the importance of proper pronoun use. We also discussed healthcare concerns. We discussed hormone replacement therapy, expected changes and timelines, and preventative care. We also talked about different surgical procedures, um, legal challenges involved in official name and gender changes, and also, most importantly, we recruited a panel of transgender identifying community members. And we allotted a long amount of time to having the panelists speak about their own experiences and also answer the students' questions. I also experimented with an anonymous question board to allow students who might otherwise feel uncomfortable asking questions out loud to be able to have their questions answered as well. Although this is a bit unusual, the panelists agreed beforehand that the question board would give students an opportunity to really address and quell any misconceptions they might have and that this should really be an opportunity to get a lot of good information across. And the question board was used to good effect, I believe. That's wonderful. How difficult was it for you to get your school and professors on board and any challenges that you faced in the process of development and implementation of the curriculum? Well, the difficulty was mostly in logistics as the administration was really encouraging and on board from the very beginning. First of all, I I proposed this idea to the course director, and then we held a meeting with several school administrators and curricular coordinators. It helped a lot that Unicom had a precedent for this subject matter, but they hadn't had a student group design a program like this before. So first it took working with the administration to find an unprogrammed spot in our schedule, and then introducing this topic as a segue within another topic that we were studying at the same time. So this session fell between our endocrinology and reproductive healthcare units. So we felt that this was sort of a perfect time to talk about transgender healthcare. Also, One of the discussions that we had was in funding for the panelists, and it turned out that our club had a grant that we needed to spend within a certain time frame. So we were able to use this grant for our panelists, and also we had to discuss logistics involving transportation for panelists, food, and other other issues related to that. The session generated a lot of excitement among the administration, as it was also the first time that first and second year students would be in a session together. And there was the anonymous discussion board and other novel elements that made it very popular. And a lot of people showed up from the school who were not first and second year students. That's wonderful. And after your experience, do you have any tips for students trying to bring the same thing to their administrations? Sure. So I would encourage interested students to think of which strategy they would like to use. So for example, you can choose to recruit a local physician to speak, or you can also lead a session yourself. I would really encourage interested students to approach their course directors early in the academic year with a well-developed plan, or if you're a first-year student, you might even want to talk about the year to come and really find a time that's not too close to exams and a time that corresponds to subject matter as closely as you can. You could also look into and network with local LGBT organizations to recruit experienced panel members and also ask for relevant information regarding the area in which your school is. You can also consider different funding possibilities for the panelists and speakers that you might have come as well. Those are really great points. So what is the future of the curriculum now? Do you think that it's something that could be used as a model for other medical schools? 
Absolutely. I would really love to make this a model for other medical schools. My school has used a similar model in the following two years after this session took place. Also, we really were able to reach out to the community and forge community connections that have helped enrich the education experience for medical students at my school. And we also were able to become a model for other of the University of New England health professional programs. I was asked to design a similar program for the physician's assistants last summer, which was really fun to do. So now I have a much better idea of where to start and how to reach out to in terms of forming these kinds of sessions. And in designing this, I've become much more empowered to to teach people as I go along in my medical education. I've been able to do sessions for the psychiatry service and the pediatric service during my, my third year rotations, and also just be able to talk with some intelligent background in my current fourth year rotations, wherever it becomes um, a possible. That's great. Thanks. That is really awesome. Congratulations. So my colleagues on the Gender and Sexuality Action Committee and I recently went through and updated our webpage to replace some of the outdated LGBT terms with more updated vocabulary. Could we quickly go over some relevant terms that someone in the medical setting might encounter when working with transgender patients? Absolutely. And thanks for bringing this up. Before we go into more medical related terminology, I think it's really important to start to think about how people with diverse gender and sexual representations identify themselves. And I feel that it's helpful to think of identity as being mapped within various spectrums. One of these spectrums that we can think about is sex, which is chromosomally determined. You have XY or XX, or there's also intersex people. This is then separate from gender identity, which is who you are. So gender identity can be envisioned on a spectrum between male and female with people identifying as male, people identifying as female, or people also identifying as somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Often people will self-identify as genderqueer. So that is a term you may hear among your your trans patients. Also, another spectrum is gender expression, and that is how you express yourself. And that can be seen on a scale between masculine and feminine. So you can think about someone dressing in a more masculine way or wearing their hair in a more masculine way versus more feminine. And this does not require you to self-identify as female or male to express yourself as more feminine or more masculine. And this is then separate from sexual orientation, which is who you are attracted to. And that can be envisioned on a scale between heterosexual and homosexual with some people identifying on the way ends of the scale and some more in the middle. So each one of these different spectrums from sex to gender identity, gender expression and sexual orientation are each distinct qualities with which we identify ourselves. And we all fit into a different realm in that large spectrum. So keeping this in mind, a transgender person is a person whose gender identity doesn't correspond 
to their sex assigned at birth. So this is their chromosomal sex doesn't correspond to their gender identity, who they are inside. And this is sometimes used as an umbrella term for all people who don't conform to traditional gender norms or what we call gender non-conforming people. So this can be seen as distinct from cisgender people. Cisgender is a term used to describe people whose chromosomally determined sex does coincide with their gender identity. So somebody who is born with XX chromosomes self-identifying as female would be a cisgender person. So you can go back to organic chemistry and imagine why we use those terms. So then we can think of trans men and trans women. So a trans man is somebody who is assigned female as birth but identifies as male. Or a trans woman is somebody who is assigned male at birth but identifies as female. So, and then we already use the term gender queer, which is a term people sometimes use to describe not feeling that they are at either ends of that gender identity spectrum. Transitioning is a, an individualized process of changing one's gender representation, appearance, and outwards gender role to align with their identity. There's no right way to do this, no predetermined goal, and this process is very different for everyone. It's a very exciting process and it's something that a physician can really help with if given the opportunity. So that's a very basic introduction. We can go much more in depth, but I think that'll help with the rest of this podcast. Great. Thank you for covering that. Once a person decides that he or she wants to transition, what are some of the different treatment options? I know that medical treatments can range from medications to going to the OR and undergoing surgery. Sure. So one of the great things that we can do as physicians is support our transgender patients through the use of such tools as hormone replacement therapy. So just to remember, not everyone identifying as trans will choose hormone replacement therapy, but for those who do, we can use, for example, estrogen for trans women or patients who are male to female, transitioning from male to female. And this comes in oral form, injection, or transdermal form, often accompanied by a testosterone blocker such as spironolactone. Generally, non-oral forms of estrogen are preferable because they'll help avoid first-pass metabolism and adverse liver effects. A patient on estrogen and testosterone blocking therapy can expect some breast development, redistribution of body fat, softening of the skin, suppression of testosterone production, some mood and impulse changes are possible, also testicular atrophy and potentially decreased libido. So these are some things to sort of prepare your patient to think about if they're considering estrogen as a hormone replacement therapy. Also, for trans women, there's a large series of gender-affirming surgeries that they can elect to do, and these can include breast augmentation, orchiectomy, vaginoplasty, facial feminization, 
electrolysis for unwanted face and body hair, and other surgical procedures. So these are some of the great tools that we can offer um, for female to males, for trans men. Testosterone is the mainstay of hormone replacement therapy. And that again can come in oral or injection form is, is tends to be the most commonly used form of testosterone. Also, there are subdural pellets that are used um, Expected gender-related effects include cessation of menses, voice changes to a more masculine range, increased hair growth on face, chest, arms, and legs, increased muscle mass and strength, and also clitoral enlargement. So testosterone is definitely very common, and it's known as T often. You'll hear people refer to T. Um, Gender-affirming surgeries for trans men include top surgeries, just so you know, top and bottom surgeries are terms that are often used among transgender patients. So top surgeries involve anything related to the chest or breast. So for trans men, that may involve breast reduction or mastectomy. Bottom surgeries involve um, phalloplasties or metoidioplasties, which involve um, actually building a neopenis or releasing the clitoris and other similar surgeries. These tend to be very, very involved. So those are some of the options that we have. Okay, great. Thank you for highlighting those. So you just wrapped up a really amazing rotation where you worked largely with transgender patients. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience at the Colin Lord Community Health Center and how everything went? Absolutely. So the Callan Lord Community Health Center is a clinic in Manhattan in New York that serves LGBT clients from adolescence through adulthood, and they offer a full range of general primary care, including mental health, case management, dentistry, pharmacy, smoking cessation services, including some that I are too numerous for me to mention right now. Their goal is to provide culturally competent care to each patient, and that can include hormone replacement therapy, HIV treatment, etc. And I was really lucky to be part of many conversations with people of all ages who are about to start hormone replacement therapy, as well as those who have been on therapy for a very long time. The clinic works so hard to make sure that every patient is able to feel comfortable, appreciated, and referred to by the name and pronouns of their choosing. It was really exciting to be part of these conversations, especially the ones between younger patients just starting on cross-gender hormone therapy. I bet that sounds like a really terrific experience. It was. Since primary care is such an important area of medicine and general prevention and screening should be emphasized for really every individual, I thought maybe we could highlight some differences in the transgender population. Maybe we could start with cancer screening, um, talk about cervical cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer. Okay, sure. And that's a really good thing to think about. So one of the things to keep in mind when treating transgender patients is that cancer screening is determined by one's anatomy. So that's more in line with one's chromosomal sex. So for example, everybody with a cervix should be screened for cervical cancer using pap smears. And this screening is exactly the same as for cisgender women. So women born with XX chromosomes or assigned female at birth. 
anybody should start, as the current guidelines say, to start screening at age 21. And that should be repeated every three to five years. One thing that's distinctive for transgender men on testosterone therapy is that testosterone can cause cervical atrophy in the epithelium, which may result in false positives or even a pap reported as inadequate by the pathologist. So it's important to alert the pathologist that your patient is on hormone replacement therapy. So similarly, with breast cancer screening, anybody with breast tissue, specifically those assigned female at birth, are at risk for breast cancer and should be screened really the same as a cisgender woman. So That also should take into account one's family history and also long-term exposure to estrogen. So this can come into play with transgender women. So those assigned male at birth identifying as women because they may be on estrogen therapy for a very long time, which will increase their risk of breast cancer. Going back to transgender men, men who opt to have top surgery or have their breasts reduced um, or mastectomy, that does not necessarily eliminate the risk of breast cancer. If you have breast tissue, then you're still at risk of breast cancer. So screening should not stop in that case. So going back to transgender women, those with a prostate remain at risk of prostate cancer. So right now, PSA screening is not supported by evidence, and this may also be falsely low in trans women on estrogen therapy. But estrogen may also decrease the risk of prostate cancer, although the degree of reduction is unknown. So again, taking family history, individual risk factors into consideration should really guide your judgment of who to screen and how to screen. I think that last part that you mentioned is very critical to just basing it on individualized risk factors is something that we should always keep in mind. I agree completely. So cardiovascular disease is another big area in primary care screening. Are there any differences in screening there? Yes. Yes and no. So there are increased risk factors for cardiovascular disease in all transgender people. This may have a lot to do with the health disparities inherent as identifying as gender nonconforming in our society. That comes with increased risk of cigarette smoking, and we know cigarette smoking to be a huge risk factor in cardiovascular disease. That, in addition to hormone replacement therapy, may put transgender patients at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Annual fasting lipids should really be tested in patients on hormone replacement therapy because hyperlipidemia is associated with both estrogen and testosterone therapy. And as with all your patients, you need to be screening for smoking and encouraging smoking cessation. Great. Are there any other special medical problems to screen for in transgender patients? Yes, there are a few. For example, diabetes screening is important as estrogen therapy may increase the risk of diabetes for transgender women and providers should screen with a hemoglobin A1C in patients with risk factors for diabetes and that can include being on estrogen therapy. Osteoporosis screening also becomes important when we are changing the hormonal makeup of our patients. And that's a concern for transgender women, status post-orchiectomy, as we are really preventing any of the protective testosterone 
from helping to protect patients' bones later on, although estrogen therapy may be protective. And transgender men, as with all natal females, are at risk for osteoporosis, even though testosterone may be bone protective. It's unclear if the bone protective qualities of testosterone continues after a transgender male has an oophorectomy. So it's important to be screening with DEXA scans. Another area is the risk of venothromboembolism of, or pulmonary embolism in transgender women. As with any patient on estrogen therapy, especially one who smokes, deep vein thrombosis becomes a huge risk. So another reason to really speak to your patients about smoking. And with any patient, sexual health history and screening is always a really important thing to do as sexual health is an important part of health in general. And it may make a provider uncomfortable to talk about sexual health, particularly with transgender patients. But it is really vital to make sure that you're screening for sexually transmitted infections as necessary, especially also since transgender hormones can sometimes come with changes in libido and changes in libido may change behavior and make people more apt to engage in risky sexual behavior. So these are questions you really need to be asking your patients. That's all really great information. Thank you, Ariella. Are there, do you have any resources that you recommend for those that might not have gotten exposure to this during their medical education and will be working with trans communities? Absolutely. I think that one of the most important resources to have is the Fenway Guide to Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Health, now in its second edition. This is a remarkable resource for all topics related to LGBT care. So not just trans care, but also care for your gay, lesbian, bisexual patients. And this will take you through a lot of the really important cultural competency issues, as well as guides for mental health, for for substance abuse, et cetera. So I really recommend this. In terms of guides specifically for transgender healthcare, there are a couple different organizations that have put out fantastic resources. UCSF Center for Excellence in Transgender Health, for example, has a great resource on hormone replacement therapy and other options for your transgender patients. Also, Callan Lord put out the Transgender Health Hormone Protocols, which is really a step-by-step guide in hormone replacement therapy dosage, labs to run, timeframes for repeat visits, expected changes, adverse effects, et cetera. And another entity, Tom Waddell, which is a clinic in San Francisco, they put out their protocols for hormonal reassignment of gender. So Tom Waddell deals with a more likely to be homeless population. So if these are people that you are treating, then that guide can be very, very helpful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing your experiences. It's great knowing that there's someone out there working to ensure that LGBT healthcare is included in medical education today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Amanda. This was wonderful. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself with help from Carol Clark. Special thanks to Amanda Quatch. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Deborah Hall is AMSA's national president. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to AMSA AdLib through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a rating in the iTunes store. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening. A special thanks to AMSA partner Walters Kluwer for supporting AMSA AdLib. To find out how you can save big on products through Walters Kluwer and their discounts on Lippincott resources, visit amsa.org slash WK.